Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 270, Wyatt's Doom. We left a bunch of conspirators muttering angrily in a boozer somewhere in the city of London near St. Paul's Cathedral, mathering about the iniquities of the Spanish and what having a Spanish king would do to their country. Now, some bright spark somewhere sometime said something about never fighting a battle unless you know you're going to win. So, our terrible trio of Thomas Wyatt, Peter Carew and James Croft did a bit of skulking, a bit of sounding out, a bit of whispering behind hands in corridors. They had a couple of targets to join them. One of them was Edward Courtney, and Edward was attractive because his nose was distinctly out of joint, with a level of wonk to it that would attract any self-respecting conspirator. Another target was Henry Grey, the Duke of Suffolk, father of Jane Grey, of course, who Mary had rather generously released on the pleadings of her friend the Duchess. And then, floating around in the background, is a man called Nicholas Throckmorton. Throckers, as he was almost never known by his friends, had been a supporter of Jane Grey and was a dedicated Protestant. And I know how much you like names, so I introduce him for you now. And surely, Throckmorton is a name anyone can remember. I do have a purpose in introducing the name, other than to confuse and bamboozle, which is to make a point. That although this event is often known as Wyatt's Rebellion, it's not at all clear that he was the prime mover initially, not obvious at all. There are a bunch of people involved. It's reasonably conciliar at the start. Anyway, before you could say 1352 Treason Act, the conspiracy was spreading like a middle-aged beer gut. Edward Courtney joined in the conspiracy and his involvement gave a nice end point to it. Because marriage between Courtney and the Princess Elizabeth 
would have a very nice symmetry to it. Oddly, in this the conspirators were very much in line with Renard's preferred policy. From Renard's point of view, a marriage between Elizabeth and Courtney would be the next best thing to having Elizabeth buried under a pile of rubble, sort of neutralising her by marriage to a Catholic bloke. Mary had considered the idea, but rejected it. But while Elizabeth was at court, she was seen often in Courtney's company. There was no point in trying to restore Jane Grey for the rebellion. Her flush was well and truly busted. But the Elizabeth Courtney ticket, well, that was more saleable, as well as getting them a new plotter. So, that deal was done. And then the Duke of Suffolk signed on the dotted line of rebellion sometime before the 22nd of December as well. We have discussed this back in Lady Jane Grey days. Maybe he just wanted to make amends to his daughter. As we mentioned last week, Renard had picked up some movement in the waters, some rumours that something was afoot. Mary's thoughts immediately spread to Elizabeth. She was suspected of talking to French heretics and questioned. But the clever princess was too slippery to be thus easily caught. Arundel and Paget did a bit of finger-wagging, said they had their eye on her, and let her leave. Attention now turned to Courtney, and he was questioned. But he too convinced the pair that they would need to look far and hard to find snow, even driven snow, that was as pure as he. Meanwhile, Peter Crewe had left court, and he was on his way down to Cornwall to do a bit of good, honest fermenting in the rebellion line. Now, while all of this was going on, Mary and her council were negotiating. And if you want evidence that Mary was not some hormone-driven, lovesick, simpering bride, you really don't have to look much further than the marriage treaty with Spain and the Emperor. Now, fair dues, Mary's Chancellor Gardiner was at the forefront of the discussions, and we know how much he hated the idea of a Spanish marriage. But, given that his boss was determined to go ahead, he now did his level best to make sure that the marriage was positioned so it would cause the English the least possible offence. The English were worried that in this novel situation, you know, of having a queen, that she'd get married to Philip of Spain and he'd then be king. So the treaty prepared for the imperial ambassadors was absolutely crystal clear. Philip would be called king, but that was as far as it went. He was not allowed to define policy. He could not declare war or anything like that. And therefore, he could not drag England into an expensive war against France. After all, what true-blooded Englishman would ever want to be dragged into a war with France, eh? Answer me that. Nor could Philip appoint any Spaniards to the Royal Council or exercise any independent powers of patronage in England. He was stitched up like the most kippery kipper you could imagine. Never has a herring be so fully kippered. And crucially... If Mary died first and there were no children, Philip was out on his ear and the throne passed to the next English heir. This all sounds great and good. But let it be noted that the lawyers were sniffy, as lawyers often are, it has to be said. It's all very well, they muttered. But inheritance law says something quite different. That has always said that if Mary snuffs it first, everything she has belongs to hubby and Bob's your uncle, Nuff said. So... Although this treaty looks very good, the worries continued in a cavalcade of muttering, eye-rolling, scowling and tutting in the finest of English traditions. The deal was being negotiated by Charles V, and at the start of January, his ambassadors duly arrived in England. It must be said that the English failed utterly to be warm to them, well, the common folk of England, I mean. 
the court and all that were all smiles and so on, possibly with the odd occasion of clapping hand over mouth and sticking the tongue out behind it, but generally, welcome, welcome, you know, that sort of thing. Come in, love to see you. But the ordinary folk of London wore their collective hearts on their collective sleeve and, nothing rejoicing, held their heads down sorrowfully. Almost each man was abashed, looking daily for worse matters to grow shortly after. When the ambassadors arrived, unfortunately for them, it had been snowing. A chronicler reported, and you have to suspect a little gleefully reported, that the boys pelted at them with snowballs. So hateful to their sight was their coming in. You also have to wonder if there'd been any parental egging on. But you know, not a happy event, however hard Gardner worked to gloss the whole thing. But Charles told his ambassadors that stinky though the deal was, they would just sign it and have done. In Spain, when he heard, Philip was horrified. To his dad, he dutifully gritted his teeth, benched his cluttocks and said, Thanks, Dad. But once he'd written this letter on January the 4th, 1554, he did the equivalent of crossing your fingers. He had a secret document made, completely disavowing this treaty, however many times he signed it, to ensure that the power and confirmation he was about to grant should be invalid and without force to bind him. So, rather fully and comprehensively justifying English fears then, something not to be forgotten. Very fortunately for Mary, Philip managed to keep this piece of work secret, and all the English would see was the smiley face bit. Said treaty was duly signed, and a marriage in proxy was planned for March. But the English brow was still furrowed, and more furrowed because the religious changes were now rolling. And that was popular with many, but not with all. A dead dog was thrown through the window of a royal room, its head tonsured like a monk. A dead cat with the same thing done was found hanging in Friday Street in London. There is unhappiness and there is surliness on every street corner. Just setting the scene and all that. It's now that Renard suggested the Queen needed to be careful, carry a big stick in the form of a bodyguard and all that. Peter Crude by this stage was firmly in Cornwall. It's not exactly clear what he'd been doing to stir things up, but rumours had now arrived back in London and a summons was sent to him to come immediately to explain himself and make it sharpish. Carew sent back some cock and bull story about not having any horses which fooled nobody and on the 7th of January 1554, Peter Carew was declared a rebel and orders were given to find and seize him. Carew chose this moment to panic. And honestly, that seems like a reasonable decision. We know where failed rebellion ends, and it's not pretty. He declared openly that he would achieve the death and destruction of the Queen and first declared war against her. He sent an urgent message to Courtney to come down immediately to Devon to help him out, to raise the standard. Courtney did no such thing. Because back in London, Gardner, Renard and Mary were deeply suspicious of Courtney. Gardner interviewed him, but the young man held his nerve. They then proposed that he should go on a foreign mission, hoping that would flush him out since, you know, he was supposed to be rebelling, which is difficult when you're a few hundred miles away. Courtney declared himself delighted to go. Gardner retired, nonplussed for the moment. Down in Cornwall, though, things were not going well for Carew, and there is a reason why things were not going well for Carew. All he'd managed to do by this stage was to collect a bunch of 40 blokes. No one else had moved a muscle to rebel. And as I say, there is a reason for this. Cast your minds back to 1549 
and the commotion time. And you might recall the prayer book rebellion, that Cornwall had been the one place where unrest had been religiously motivated. So they would be disinclined to follow a heretic like Carew. And anyway, the new queen was their champion. So why are we going to do this then? Now, maybe Carew would have had more success if he'd been outstandingly charismatic and popular, but he'd rather blotted his copybook there to boot. He had been right at the heart of the army, which had brutally suppressed the prayer book rebellion. He'd also enthusiastically joined in the Edwardian removal of the church goods afterwards and all that sort of thing under Cranmer. So, honestly, if Carew had been burning to death by the side of the road, no Cornishman would have been prepared to even chuck their tankard of beer to put it out. This is why he needed Courtney down there, the Earl of Devon, of course, and therefore with local influence down there in the southwest. Now, Carew tried hard. He didn't give up. He bribed a guard at the gate of Exeter, managed to get inside and get some kit together. He even tried to get the sheriff who was hunting him. And by the 24th of January, all he'd managed to gather was 70 men and he was being hunted. Now, Peter Carew was a wild child, but even he knew that he didn't bring down the Tudor state with three score men and ten. So he hopped it. He wrote a letter to the sheriff saying he was going to London. and Then he hopped it out of the country, probably via France since it's unorthodox behaviour to tell your pursuers where you're going. Exit Carew, stage right. Sadly, Thomas White and Kent did not know this was happening, and because on that very same day, he decided that they could no longer wait for March to do their thing, that they were probably all discovered, and they'd have to go earlier than planned. The key, of course, if you're going to raise a rebellion, is to get the local gentry on your side, because without that, you are essentially stuffed. So, By the time Wyatt raised the standard of rebellion on the 25th of January 1554, he'd been writing to local dignitaries such as one Robert Southwell. Southwell was having none of it, but Wyatt, of course, did not tell that to the good burghers of Maidstone in Kent. Obviously, that would be silly. No, indeed. Wyatt told his listeners that all the nobility of the realm and the whole council, only one or two except, were agreeable to his pretensed treason. Wyatt's cause was that England was about to become ruled by a Spaniard and be overrun by Spaniards, and that this was a bad thing. There's an interesting exchange in the marketplace at Maidstone. So, the crowd is outraged, their blood is up. But loyalty to the Queen is strong, so there's a bit of wobbling in the crowd. So, one of the crowd pipes up. Sir, is your quarrel only to defend us from overrunning by strangers and to advance liberty and not against the Queen? No, quod Wyatt, we mind nothing less than any wise to touch her grace, but to serve her and honour her according to our duties. Well, quod they, give us then your hand, we will stick to you to death in this quarrel. That done, there came to him one other of good wealth, saying, Sir, quod he, they say I love pottage well, I will sell all my spoons and all the plate in my house, rather than your purpose shall quail, and sup my pottage with my mouth. I trust, quod he, you will restore the right religion again. Whist, quod Wyatt, you may not so much as name religion, for that will withdraw from us the hearts of many. You must only make your quarrel for overrunning by strangers. And yet to thee, be it said in council, as unto my friend, We mind only the restitution of God's words, but 
No words. Interesting. It suggests, of course, that religion did play a part in Wyatt's rebellion. As I say, this is a matter of some debate, and the famous historian A.G. Dickens was convinced that it was, in the end, a Protestant rebellion. But outwardly, at least, the cause was not about that. It was about the fear of foreign domination. Their job at Maidstone done and the men of Kent raising themselves there, Wyatt and his associates split up, travelling to Rochester, Milford, Ashford. Where there was resistance, such as one Christopher Roper, they were locked up and the rebellion now began to spread. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mary and her counsel probably heard the news the next day, or even the same day, actually. Mary's thoughts immediately flew to her sister, possibly worried about her safety, but let's be honest, more likely that Elizabeth was up to no good. So Mary wrote immediately to get Elizabeth to put herself in her hands. Fright, dear and entirely beloved sister, put yourself in good readiness with all convenient speed to make your repair hither to us, which you pray you fail not to do, assuring you that as you may most safely remain here, so shall you be most heartily welcome to us. Elizabeth, as we had mentioned, was no fool. She threw a tactical sickie and stayed right where she was. By the 27th of January, the required letter rousing the Lord's lieutenants and sheriffs to come to the defence of their Queen had been issued by the Crown, and there were mud-spattered horsemen carrying them to the four corners of the land. Wherefore, right trusty and right well-beloved, as ye be a man of courage and bear good heart to us, your liege lady and country. Now acquit yourself according to your bounden duty, which you owe to God and us. While that message was travelling out from London to bring men to help Queen Mary's cause, it was joined by a hasty peer of the realm. This was Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk. The pheasant had been flushed by the same stratagem they'd tried against Courtney, the offer of command, command of the forces to take on the rebels. Noble Suffolk, you shall command the Queen's forces. But hang on, I'll just get my coat. The coat Suffolk was referring to was a hundred miles away in Leicestershire, in the Grey family home of Bradgate Park. By the 29th of January, Suffolk was there, dashing off letters, and then he rode post-haste to Leicester to raise them against the threat of foreign domination. Arise, good people, to defend yourself from the yoke of tyranny to which the general response was, nah, you're all right. Never mind, Suffolk still had Coventry, where he was confident of support, and off he set again. Coventry had no desire to be living in a ghost town and slammed the door firmly in his face. Suffolk was stymied. Back in Kent, the battle for hearts and minds was on, as Robert Southwell declared to all that would listen that Wyatt had been fibbing, he'd never been part of this. As the people of Sevenoaks joined the rebellion, Southwell was able to offer a pardon for all those who would just stand down. 
were once raised, the blood of the people of Kent, I'm reliably informed, is hard to put down. In some of those initial skirmishes, actually, Wyatt's companions were beaten, but Wyatt marched from Gravesend with a band of rebels too large for the sheriff to stop any more. However, the forces of law and order were gathering. It was the octogenarian Duke of Norfolk who had been assigned the role by the council, and on a cold and rainy day on the 29th of January, the old warhorse set out for Rochester, for where Wyatt was also headed with his army. Now Norfolk had about 300 of his brave Norfolk men and captains, and he'd been joined by 600 of the Queen's army from London. Plus, and most significantly, he had six pieces of artillery. But when he reached Rochester, Wyatt was already there. He'd beaten him to it. Right, on the Corporal Jones principle that they don't like it up em, Norfolk had his artillery fire on the town, swelling with pride. He prepared to order his brave lads forward. Before he had the chance to order his brave lads forward, one of his captains leaned forward and suggested that he might like to make himself scarce, nodding at the Londoners. Before Norfolk could fully contemplate the meaning of all this, a cry went up from the London bands. We are all Englishmen! We are all Englishmen! As they did, they passed Norfolk and then turned, pointing their arms at him. Norfolk got the message remarkably quickly, and as he left, maybe he saw the captain shaking hands with Wyatt and their captain. The chance to snuff out this rebellion quickly was now gone. It was now a serious threat, and Mary's grip on her crown weakened. On the same day, interestingly, the diplomatic bag of the French ambassador was seized. There inside was a copy of Elizabeth's letter to Mary throwing a sickie. Now that looks suspicious. Was Elizabeth involved? Was she talking to the French? It is a good job, though, that Wyatt wasn't relying on his mates. Near Coventry, Suffolk's story came to an end that was entirely sui generis. Having completely failed to get any support whatsoever, he decided to leg it, heavily disguised, and rather cleverly disguised, he thought. Well, wearing his servant's coat anyway. We should be plenty! Before long, he heard the pursuit and the baying of hounds, and decided that this would be a good time to hide in a hollowed-out tree, where, of course, said dogs duly found him. Suffolk's brother did a little better, but before long he also was under lock and key, and they were on their way to London, prisoners. Their challenge was now over. All relied on Wyatt. Wyatt used his captured ordnance to take Cowling Castle, and by the end of January he was approaching Southwark, gateway to London. And on the 1st of February, London was in turmoil, going absolutely potty-noggin. Reassuring proclamations from the Queen and Council probably had exactly the same impact as does the full and unequivocal support from the board for their football manager. And behind the scenes, the council members were all pleading with Mary to leave London, go to Windsor, find a place of safety until this rebellion has been dealt with. But Mary never lacked for intelligence. She knew if she left, London could fall. Mary never lacked for courage. She needed the loyalty of Londoners and she was convinced that she could win the loyalty of Londoners. And the place to do that was in the heart of commercial London at the Guildhall. So there they all were, council urging Mary to leave. But Mary 
ordered them instead to stop their whining, stiffen the sinews, imitate the action of a tiger, stand shoulder to shoulder with her in defiance. Down the strand she led them all, so they rode in procession to the heart of the city and to the Guildhall. The news spread. The citizens of London rushed from their homes and their businesses and their booths, rushed into the streets to see them pass, and if they could, into the Guildhall to hear what their Queen had to say. A mixture of excitement, panic, fear, curiosity, and then their Queen stood in front of them. The Mayor loudly commanded them to be silent, and so silent they fell, and the Queen spoke to them. It was a good speech. She started by trashing the credibility of the rebels, who she said had only pretended to object to her marriage, but now have betrayed the inward treason of their hearts, as most arrogantly demanding the possession of our person and the keeping of our tower. Then she enlisted her right and the reputation of her father, who the modern world might consider a fat old tyrant, but to the people of the time had been everything a king should be. My father, as ye all know, possessed the regal estate by right of inheritance, which now by the same right descended unto me. Then there's a bit more trash talk. It's interesting that at the core of a nation's self-image is their law, and nowhere was this feeling stronger than England, where despite constant evidence that the law could be manipulated by money and influence, belief in English law as an expression of national personality and of everyone's equality before the law, no matter of station, was absolutely unshakable. And so Mary claimed that these rebels would pervert that dearly beloved core value. So doth he intend, by colour of the law, to subdue the laws to his evil. Then there's a really nice piece, declaring Mary to be the equal in public to either her father or her sister. She turned her gender, which so far had been such a worry and a problem and a difficulty, she turned that into a strength. She used the positioning that Elizabeth would take note of and mine freely in the future. I cannot tell how naturally a mother loveth her children, for I never was the mother of any. But certainly a prince and governor may as naturally and earnestly love subjects as the mother doth her child. Then she turned to her marriage, saying that she didn't care if she married or not. She was only doing it for their sake. She would only do it if Parliament agreed which was a bit of a concession, actually, but it was a safe one, and it was well worth it. And then the rousing finish, full of confidence and bravado. Wherefore now, as good and faithful subjects, pluck up your hearts, and like true men, stand fast with your lawful prince against these rebels, both our enemies and yours. The Guildhall went potty. Mary had the loyalty of her subjects, they would die for her now, and the speech was critical, because it meant that on the 3rd of February, the gates of London Bridge remained closed in Wyatt's face and in the face of the London bands that had joined him, the White Coats. Wyatt had been absolutely confident that with the White Coats at his side, Londoners would rise up against the Queen and Council and throw open the gates. Now, he might have had 4,000 men and the ordinance to take a tiddler like Cowling Castle, but London was an entirely different kettle of fish. That evening in Southwark, I would guess that Wyatt 
was a very worried man, and indeed he's reported to have turned to his cousin and said, Ah, Cousin Eiley, in what extreme misery are we? The revolt of these captains with the white coats seemed to benefit in the beginning, and as a thing sent by God for our good and to comfort us forward in our enterprise, which I now feel to our confusion. Ah, cousin, this it is to enter such a quarrel, which notwithstanding we now see must have a ruthful end. Yet of necessity we must prosecute the same. Wyatt knew that he must appear to have a plan if his men were not simply to melt away back to the country, and so the next morning they resolved to try and find a weakness in their opponent's defences, a different way into London. And so they left Southwark and they marched all the way to the west to Kingston to cross the river there and they marched up to London, approaching from the west. At St James's Field, as it was then, he was met by the Earl of Pembroke and his contingent of horse and the battle was joined with artillery firing from both sides. Wyatt knew that he had to get inside the walls. There was nothing else. And so Wyatt pressed on, de- determined to find a route into London. What becomes clear at this point is that Wyatt fully understood his only chance was if London joined him now. While he was stuck outside with his country army, he would inevitably go the way of every other rebel in the Tudor century, with the exception, of course, of Mary. And so you get this extraordinary running battle. Wyatt leading a corps of his men through the changes of direction and different routes, while the Queen's army charged and reformed and followed and attacked and attacked again, with contingents of Wyatt's army splitting off into smaller fighting units or running for safety in a home. Yet onward and onward Wyatt pushed until eventually he did indeed make it again to the walls of London at the Temple Bar. He now had fewer than a 100 men remaining with him, but if he could get inside the Temple Bar, if that would open for him, he was still able to win. Here was his final chance. He could flood into the arms of the Londoners and on to victory. But all that greeted him were shots and defiance from the defenders, and so the game was played out. Seeing his dismay, a knight called Maurice Barkle persuaded him to surrender, and finally Wyatt had his wish, riding through London on a horse, sadly not in the manner to which he'd hoped. As Wyatt came to the tower by barge, he was unrepentant. Go, traitor! There was never such a traitor in England, sneered one Philip Denny. I'm no traitor, replied Wyatt. Thou art more a traitor than I, which I guess is the Tudor rebel's equivalent of I know you are, but what am I? There followed a festival of death, citizens, a festival. On her victory over Northumberland, Mary had been impressively moderate and restrained. Only three men executed, Jane Grey and Guilford Dudley spared, despite Renard's pleas to have them killed. Maybe there's a parallel with the path of religious prosecution here. Mary, once her mercy had been denied, became pitiless. Fierce warnings were issued against any that harboured rebels. Rebels were rounded up and held in churches and prisons, which overflowed with doomed men. Gallows were erected all over the city. Cheapside, Tower Hill, London Bridge, Smithfield, Fleet Street. The surviving white coats the London bands who had deserted Norfolk were each taken to the door of their own house and hung there in the sight of their neighbours. Renard wrote that one sees nothing but gibbets and hanged men. 
150 of the rebels were executed, a far higher proportion of the rebels than died in, for example, the Pilgrimage of Grace. On the 12th of February, Jane Grey and Guilford Dudley were executed, and on the 23rd, it was Suffolk's turn. Courtney was brought in on the 12th of February, and he was imprisoned in the Tower. And Wyatt, meanwhile, had been captured, but he was not yet given over to trial. Because Mary wanted him around until she had used him to land a much greater prize. And on the 9th of February, a troop of horse and three privy councillors clattered into the courtyard at Ashridge, Elizabeth's grand house at Hertfordshire. They had come to take the Lady Elizabeth to London under suspicion of rebellion and treason. Here was Mary's chance to rid herself of her hated sister. Well, you can hear about that in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you might like to know that since we will be approaching St George's Day, we are planning an extra history and technicolour episode, better known as an extravaganza of history, insofar as every history and technicolour episode is, of course, an extravaganza. So Wolf and I have selected Kenneth Branagh's Henry V as a suitably English play to celebrate the occasion, one of England's best-known kings, one of England's best-known pen-pushers. Although, in fact... Was it a patriotic play? Well, listen to History in Technicolor on the 23rd of April, which is, of course, both St George's Day and Shakespeare's birthday. Until then, let me thank you all again for taking part in listening, for all your reviews on iTunes, which have been particularly brilliant recently, comments on the website, jokes, posts on the Facebook site. It's been a hideous week for lovers of history, churches and art, watching Notre Dame burn. Really horrific moment. But it seems now that Much was saved and Notre Dame can be an occasion for all Europeans to come together and celebrate as she will surely be restored to her full glory. So, thanks to all of you, especially my members and generous donators, of course, and see you soon, either on History in Technicolor on Tewsbury or in two weeks' time. Or, you know, both. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 